Hi there, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners. Welcome to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast series, where we feature leading practitioners and thinkers across connected industry and the broader technology landscape. Good day, everyone, and this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner at Momenta Partners with another episode of our Edge podcasts. And today, we have a special guest with Z Hussein, who is the CTO and founder of Eris Communications. Z, it's, it's great to have you with us today. Thank you very much, Ed. Enjoy being here. <laughs> Fantastic. So, uh, what we'd like to do, just to dive right into into you know in, into the conversation, is to to get a little bit of sense of of what's what's shaped your view of the Internet of Things, and share a little bit about your your background and and what has brought you to here. Okay. So let me, you know, this, I don't want to make this a sales pitch, but let me explain a little bit about what Eris does and why we have re- achieved the kind of, uh, I will call it, uh, a very excellent success in the market of uh, IoT and uh, prior to that M2M. Uh, we have been in existence for a number of years, and frankly, before the terms M2M and IoT even came into existence, we didn't originate those terms, but I, to be honest, I wish we had. <laughs> But uh, it was it was the kind of um, I guess we were originally a technology looking for a place to happen, and we had a approach to doing data transmission back in the analog cellular days that allowed people to eliminate the need for uh, dumb modems. You know, the using uh, traditional uh, communication methods and protocols on the cellular network, which were measured in voice minutes that could get incredibly expensive. So we came up with an approach that allowed companies to migrate to sort of uh, an early understanding of small amounts of data on the analog system, on the analog cellular system in North America, particularly in the United States, and then Canada and Mexico after that, which um, allowed them to understand the value of communication, rapid communication in a matter of seconds, no matter where their device was in that footprint of North America. Uh, we stitched together a network of carriers. This is prior to the large United States-wide, nationwide carriers that exist today, and created a network that allowed this data to be sent transparently no matter where that device was, whether it was in Montreal in Canada, Mexico City, or Atlanta or San Francisco. It behaved the same way. That, I believe, was a very early way of saying that data from these devices, remote control of these devices, in a matter of seconds had tremendous implications. In the alarm and security business, for example, as well as in the trucking industry, in the early uh, trailer tracking industry for the customers that we had at the time. When the term machine-to-machine was coined, and it's not original to us, unfortunately. I'd love to say I'm the originator of that term, but it isn't. Um, it, it captured the imagination of industrial folks, engineers, but it didn't capture the imagination of the consumers at large. The gentleman who came up with the term Internet of Things, which I mentioned in my book, by the way, so you can get a download a copy of that from our website, um, he came up with the term, and I think that has become a very nice way of capturing the consumer imagination. Ah, I get it. We have the public Internet for websites, for customers to communicate with each other, for social media, for companies to deliver the message that of what they are up to, what they do. And what we're talking about is a network of devices, things, 
smart things, capabilities that can now be using the Internet to provide a function for general benefit of mankind, you know, I'm exaggerating the point only a little bit, frankly, um, that allows people to take advantage of information that they might not have had access to before. That was wonderful. I, I think that that revelation, if you will, the imagination that has, uh, uh, that has been captured in that term really leads to what could be done in the future. Uh, we have seen an explosion of markets that uh, can take advantage of what the IoT, Internet of Things, IoT can and provide to them, such as in the healthcare industry, in the connected car industry, the ability to get information about your car, the ability to get information about your home, the ability to access information from things in ways that make us um, a better society as a whole. The healthcare devices, Fitbit devices, fitness devices that people can then use to gather data about how well they're doing personally and send that data somewhere where they can analyze it later on and say, oh, you know what, my data from a month ago showed that I was in better physical health than I am today. Maybe I need to take some action. Or I'm using a medical device such as a wireless communications blood sugar monitoring system, which do exist today. And now I can send that data to my healthcare provider so they keep track of what is up to, and they can contact me if there's some kind of issue associated with my blood sugar, et cetera. So I think we have created a new paradigm where information from devices, smart devices, smarter devices, are starting to make an impact on our daily life. Uh, we have a gentleman in our company who is also focused on the social good of the IoT, particularly in third world developing countries. And I'm very, very pleased to see the kinds of stuff that companies are coming up with where we can benefit uh, people who are not necessarily as well off as we are in the U.S. or in European markets who need the benefit of automation that can help them. For example, um, if a water pump breaks in the middle of a village in sub-Saharan Africa, it gets reported. So it doesn't take two months to fix it. It can be done in a matter of days when somebody goes out and says, aha, this mechanical water pump is not working properly. A wonderful, wonderful benefit that I think the Internet of Things is shaping for us in a variety of different markets is going to be the next wave. Uh, you know, we've talked about the waves and revolutions in the past. I think this is the next wave of things we can do with the IoT that is simply not limited by any, anything that uh, we can imagine today in the future. No, that's tremendous, and I think we're very much of the of the same mind in terms of our, our view of the, the potential of, of connecting the physical world. Um, let's go back to uh, the origins of, of, of Eris and, and some of the initial uh, technology challenges and uh, that that needed to be solved. And, and and how did your own personal background really lead you to identify you know where where there was a market need uh, that and and ultimately to you know, to focus on the on the technologies and business problems that, that, that were at the origins of ERAS? Sure. When we first got started, analog cellular usage in this country and in developed countries in Europe, etc., wasn't very high. I mean, the, what I will call today is now a saturated market with everyone having a cell phone, everyone having a smartphone, didn't exist. Back in the early to mid-90s, very few people had, had uh, cell phones. Uh, the need for communication, being able to get accessed uh, wherever you were from a voice perspective or then early data perspective such as text messaging simply didn't exist. So there were technological barriers from that perspective. You had a nation which had a number of small carriers. 
So one issue from a business perspective that we encountered is we had to have nationwide coverage footprint, which where a customer deploying an application device, uh, you know, this is one of our early customers basically said, we have an alarm and security unit. The fact that we ship and across the entire United States means we put a product into distribution and we have no clue where it's going to get powered up. You need to have a network that allows that unit to transmit its data no matter where it is. Well, we had to run around stitching together the business agreements from a number of different cellular carriers at the time. There were over 35 to 40 of them in the United States that we had to light up in a consistent way, meaning that we'd go to them and say, hey, folks, uh, this is a business application. There's not a person and a human and a voice minute. We want to send data in the analog cellular system. Here's how we'd like to do it. And there were very, very good thinkers in many of those companies that uh, – that recognized the need for this kind of an application and basically supported us. Uh, in the early days, with I'll, I'll pick an example and a name if, if that's okay. Uh, and I'm oh, please, sure that no. Yeah, love, love to hear. Sure. Bell Atlantic 9X, the CTO was Dick Lynch. And we went to him and said, this is what we want to do. And we are absolutely, absolutely pleased by the fact that he said, great idea, let's make it happen. And so they were one of the earliest carriers who supported us. And if without the personal background and support of Dick, we wouldn't have had difficulty getting off the ground. So there are people that we have encountered over the years who have helped us in various different ways. Ed Reynolds, who was the president of Networks at Altel, is a good, another good example of that, who helped us get under, get ourselves, uh, pre- sorry, president of Bell South, who helped us get, uh, uh, get into the Bell South at a time when people said, you know, what is this data? What is IoT? What is machine to machine? And I think with those, with the, with the hindsight that I can apply, we always had some internal champions at the various places that helped us overcome difficulties. Uh, and so we got our network stitched together and we went from there. What were the, some of the initial challenges that you faced uh, really in, in you know, trying to realize this, this vision of a uh, you know, really a consistent network? I mean, I think you, were, you had, uh, had to deal with a lot of different uh, different companies, a lot of different cultures, right. uh, a lot of different technologies. What, uh, in your view, I mean, what were some of the uh, the challenges that you overcome, and and were there some lessons that you that you learned that remain relevant and applicable today? Absolutely. Uh, you know, for example, one of the things, one of the big differences between us and the traditional cellular smartphone and cell phone industry is that the customer relationship, the relationship between us and our customers is not a one-to-one or semi-one-to-one relationship with an individual who has a smartphone in the consumer space or even a small family with three, four, five, up to 10 or you know, fewer devices that, uh, that, they, that they interact with. So we early on recognized that we expected to add hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands of devices into our network for a single customer for ha- who had an application that they wanted to deploy nationwide. So the relationship had to be very different. You sold the customer on the benefits, enterprise customers on the benefits of what this data could do for them. And then you had to put the systems in place for us to deal with hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of devices at a time for activation, for provisioning. Um, we had an early customer, for example, who was doing on-the-floor factory testing of their product and it took them about five minutes to get the uh, product tested after manufacturing. And they said, we want to do live over-the-air testing without having to call you. 
we want, which was the traditional way that you got a cell phone activated. We want to be able to send you a request on the internet at the time, a connection to you, where you provision that device activated on your systems because we had our own network, and let us know what the number is. We will program it during the test function, and we will do a live over-the-air test. And we said, great, how quickly do you want to do that? They said, 30 seconds, wow. You know, imagine provisioning a cell phone 25 years ago in 30 seconds or less. We set a design target for ourselves of 10 seconds, and we achieved a nominal operating delay from request to provisioning live on the air of about two to three seconds. That capability is something that has we pioneered, and that has stood us in, you know, in good standing with all of our customers even today where we can provision and activate and deactivate and control a device uh, literally within a matter of seconds. Another an example of that is we had this scenario where a customer came to us with a seasonal application, um, notably water irrigation monitoring, where the systems get turned off for months at a time in winter when they're not being used, and they activate in, in uh, the early springtime frame when they start being used again. And they came to us and said, you know, we cannot afford to go out and touch these devices and change the numbers and reactivate them. Can you make a system for us where between the months of, I'm making this up, November and March, we will not uh, incur a bill because we're not using your network, but we don't want the number to go away. We want to be able to deactivate the device and reactivate the device. And we said, sure, let's figure it out. And we put together a system that would they could through an API call or using our portal, deactivate the device. And in March, when the device was turned back on again because they applied power, it would automatically convert from a suspended state where it retained its number to an active state and started working just completely normally uh, and without any hiccups whatsoever. That was another thing that we pioneered is the ability to suspend a device, the concept of being able to turn off a device for months at a time and not lose the the uh, ability to reactivate that device when it came online later on. So yeah, there were all kinds of neat little interesting things that we were able to do. By the way, the reason we were able to do this, and I I want to emphasize that, is that um, in the smartphone arena where people typically pay 50 or $100 on an average revenue per month, um, the expectation of service costs is a little different than when you have an IoT device where you're paying a lot less than that. And it isn't just small percentages, it's a lot less than that. The average revenue per unit for an M2M IoT device is tiny. And so can you operate efficiently, effectively, with a with good profit when you're generating revenue that is tiny compared to a smartphone? That's led us to requiring automation, and that was a sort of a guiding principle that our early uh, founding CEO put, put on me, and I was running engineering and operations at the time, and said, how can we make sure that we operate successfully with low revenue, but with good margin and decent margin profitably and make it happen. So my instant response to him was, you cannot have people involved. It has to be highly automated. And that has been a guiding mantra right from day one. So we automate as much as we can. We automate. The minute a customer has to call us and we have to provide human support for either one device or 10 devices or a market, it adds to the cost burden. And so we try to automate as much as possible. Right. So as you look at the advances in technology that have certainly made the cost of, of, of sensors and processors a lot cheaper, essentially the, the ability to generate data, you know, what, what, are, what stand out to you as some of the 
the the more impactful developments in in technology that have really helped your customers begin to realize their vision uh, much more effectively, and and also help you uh, as a, you know as a technology provider you know, really deliver uh, more robust solutions. Sure. Um, I think that if you look at the way we serve our customers, by the way, I should step back and add one other uh, comment, which would lead to the answer here. We provide cellular IoT connectivity. That was how we started. We have expanded from that to data. We have expanded from that to content analytics. Previously, it was just transport of the data. Now it's on on behalf of our customers. We look at the content and analyze and predict what's going to happen. All of the things that predictive analytics can do for you, business intelligence, you name it, you name it the traditional phrases associated with why data and information, analyzed data, analyzed data which results in information is of value. Um, I think the most interesting impact that I see has happened in the past, between the two to 10 years and going forward, is the development of new sensors, particularly in the healthcare industry. Um, the fact that we now have devices that are um, going to allow data to be gathered from the human body using embedded sensors or skin implants or even going beyond that, uh, there's some interesting things going on with uh, with measuring devices inside the eyeball, for example. Uh, I think that is going to revolutionize how we as a society will benefit because Healthcare is becoming such a paramount um, cost issue for everybody, and the fact that we can now do some things that we weren't able to do 5, 10, 15 years ago and transmit that data to the healthcare providers who need to know that data is a big deal. So I think the revolution in the sensor markets, particularly for healthcare, is going to be the next next big thing, if you will, for IoT in general. It is Healthcare, by the way, is the most rapidly growing uh, number of units on our network today. Uh, although other older uh, implementations, such as the connected car, was was a natural for the mobile cellular industry, healthcare appears to be the next wave. That's really interesting because healthcare, as a highly regulated uh, industry, has uh, you know always comes up as 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 one of the uh, you know one of the one of the areas or one of the industries that that is you know that that's been particularly challenging for right. for technology vendors. Could you could you share some of the experiences that that you've had in in working in that industry, and uh, and and why, uh, you know, what's has has anything changed to uh, to make you know to to boost your optimism? Sure. Yes. Definitely. Um, I think that there are. I like to separate healthcare IoT applications into two classes. One is the what I call the mission critical applications, and then there are the non mission critical applications. And what's the difference? Well, a mission critical application is one in which the technology, the transport, the analytics is so vital that if one of those elements breaks, a human is put in harm's way. That's a concern, uh, meaning that if I was doing a defibrillator that is implanted in a person's chest and that requires me to have data on it continuously and there's some problem, I would be very reluctant about saying that's a perfect IoT application because if there is a failure in the system, which we are still evolving, still learning, still making improvements on, uh, we have put a human at harm's way. And, of course, you know, worst-case scenario, we put somebody who, is, uh, who ends up with a fatality. And I don't want that to be the driving force behind healthcare IoT. So if you look at the non-mission critical scenarios where you might have a person who is doing a, a Fitbit, 
kind of solution, where it's a healthcare uh, tracking, fitness tracking monitor, or is doing a blood sugar monitor, which isn't just a passive measurement that is reported to the person taking their blood sugar, but is reported to a healthcare provider who gets access to that data. And maybe, just maybe, uh, says, hey, you know, you haven't taken your blood sugar measurement in a week. Call them back and say, what are you doing? I, uh, there was an interesting um, interesting example of a new startup, which I'm hoping that the, the, they will be successful down the road, which was looking at uh, diabetic patients, in, particularly in the uh, low-income community. Because one of the biggest problems with um, people who don't have enough money to worry about food is that they don't get their quality of their food as well as they ought to. They go into the fast food places because it's easy. And you're seeing a a massive uh, uh, change in their blood sugar simply because they aren't watching what they eat. Well, they were going to try and tackle that by taking the blood sugar data, their weight, their blood pressure, sending it to a healthcare management system, not necessarily a doctor, who would monitor that and then work with the local cities and counties to provide um, food stamps that would only allow them to go buy healthy food so that they could be in control of their diabetic scenario rather than ending up in an emergency room scenario uh, and, and placing themselves at risk for worse scenarios, um, you know, worst case scenarios for diabetic patients. That, I think, is a wonderful example of where information gathered from a remote device could play a role in managing healthcare and managing the, the betterment of the person who is being measured in that particular case. Um, it, it, it's, it's, it, it's amazing to see what possibilities exist. It's just, we're, not, we're limited by the imagination of the ideas that we can come, in, come up with. And I don't mean we as at as ARIS. I mean the people who are implementing these kinds of solutions. Yeah, no, that, those, are, uh, those are amazing use cases. And I, I do think that what's been so remarkable about the you know the vision that's evolved around you know what what we call connected industry or or you know commercial industrial internet of things is is uh, is really world changing and on on so many levels and so many dimensions um, you know I, I did have a have a question about the uh, the market itself though has gone through some uh, ups and downs as it were and and I'd love to get your view on the uh, this really sentiment in the market. Market. If we go back about four or five years ago, and, I, and I, when industrial IoT hype was at its peak, uh, <laughs> yeah. and, and of course, you know, you you as a as a true veteran or, or, or an, uh, you know an OG OG of uh, of, of <laughs> M to M, I mean, you've kind of seen this uh, seen these same technologies when they were called something different. But uh, there was a lot of hype. There was a lot of uh, ebullient uh, forecasts of yeah. uh, exponential. Growth, and then we we found ourselves into a bit of a. Uh, I, I think the reality was much more uh, yeah. deliberate than that. But I'd love to get your just your perspective on uh, what the impact of that uh, of that initial hype cycle about five years yep. ago was, and the and you know where where we are today. How uh, you know how how that's really. Uh, how how things have panned out relative to some of the most aggressive uh, expectations and and how the actual market itself has has evolved. Okay, uh, I think that you know one of the uh, one of the comments I might make about the aggressive hype has been indeed the fact that people expected way too much too soon too quickly, 
and forgot about the real-world experience of what it takes to get an IoT application done. If you'll pardon my using a very simplistic analogy, let me, let me give you uh, an example of what it takes to develop and deploy an IoT application. It has nothing to do with technology. It's purely a business case issue. Um, why do companies exist, right? I'm going to be very simplistic about this. Companies exist either to increase their revenue or to lower their cost. Whatever they can do to make one of those two things happen or both, that increases the delta is their profit. That's how they make business happen. That's how they, they operate. That's how they grow in the future. Well, IoT solutions in general will help those if you can prove it. So once you figure it out, where is the return on that investment for an IoT application, whether it's internal cost reduction or increasing revenue because you now have product that you sell into the market, you're going to be better off. There are other drivers. I mean, that was a very, very grossly simplistic view, and I'll be the first to admit that. Regulations, you know, whether it's an industry regulation or a government regulation comes into play. One of the earliest examples that I can point to of what is now the smart meter reading industry was a company who came to us about 25 years ago, 2020, well, maybe 23 years ago, that came to us and said, hey, you know, we've just had this county or a, I forget whether it was a county or a city or some locality in, on the East Coast, which has legislated that thou shall provide peak off peak um, utility rates that are different for residential consumers. And they said, we can't do this. We go out there and we measure their meters mechanically with a meter reader who walks around once a month and takes a reading. We can't do this two or three times a day. We can't, there's no way we can solve this. And that led to the growth of the utility meter reading industry, frankly, where the ability to follow regulations where customers were, consumers were being benefited, customers were being benefit, benefited by the ability for data to allow a better rate, a utility managed uh, a public utility commission managed rate from the utility, which would give them peak off peak billing and enable more efficient use of energy, allow people to offset and shift their usage of that energy to perhaps off peak times because money talks, incentives are good. Uh, that's an enabler function for IoT in the utility market. Uh, and you can go on from there. You can take other examples of where, uh, you know, those, that kind of benefit is, is a big deal. Um, you know, and 15, 20, 30 years ago, flights and airplanes were frequently delayed because of a, quote, mechanical problem, unquote. Well, what the heck, right? When a part fails, that's when you go look at it? No, you try to figure out before it fails so you can take some preventive action and make sure that the part is either replaced or appropriately serviced so that parts don't fail as much. Well, that has happened. Aircraft now report what's happening during flight. We're working with a couple of manufacturers who are basically taking data and understanding what is likely to fail, not just what has failed, but what is likely to fail. Should I hold the plane? Should I tell the pilot, you know, you're good to go, because, but we will have a maintenance tech or maintenance engineer waiting at your next port of call with the right part to replace so that we can um, get you on your way as quickly as possible. You don't have to figure out what's wrong. We'll tell you what's wrong, and we'll fix it before you have to worry about it. The mean time to repair for an aircraft has gone down so dramatically that I have yet to hear in the past year or two anybody, any airline, and I take a lot of flights, tell me we have been delayed due to a mechanical problem on that plane. That's the kind of revolution of efficiency and better use of assets that IoT is enabling all the time. Uh, yeah. Another example I will point to, if you will bear with me for another quick example, um, about 15, 20 years ago, we were in a particular building where the HVAC system 
HVAC system on the roof of the building failed and the room, the offices got warm, but we didn't know that till it got really warm. And then the guy came out, figured out, oh, you know what? This compressor fan failed. So the compressor shut down. Now he had to go back, go get the fan, come back and fix it. Well, a $20 part resulted in a compressor failure that was well over $5,000 for that commercial HVAC system. What if that fan had been reported by the system saying, hey, this fan's no longer on, the compressor's going to fail, come out and fix it before the $5,000 part fails. That's the kind of things that IoT is solving for people today. That's really uh, uh, some very powerful uh, examples of, of uh, the you know the kind of changes that we're seeing. What are some of the uh, either notable uh, characteristics of, of projects that have that have been able to succeed early on? I think there's there's a lot of discussion about the you know prolonged. Uh, amount of time that it takes for for proof of concepts to be successful, and you know the uh, I would say the, the the more measured pace of of industrial companies in particular in in rolling out uh, you know, connected technology solutions. Are there are there are there some examples of companies that have been particularly successful in you know in with pilots that and and then along the way being able to establish best practices or templates as it were that can that that have been able to accelerate uh subsequent pro- similar projects yeah that's a darn good question and and i have to admit that i'm not necessarily the right person to answer that question <laughs> um i i have seen the reports that say you know 60% 70% of of uh, iot applications remain stuck in the proof of concept phase for a long long time and I, I don't see that because one of the things we like to do is basically tell people, figure out what the heck you're trying to do before you get started. What is the outcome that you want? What are the metrics that you're going to apply? What's your ROI? And, you know, it's, it's a little fuzzy. I will be the first to admit that sometimes it's a little fuzzy. Till you get there, you won't know. But figure it out. Uh, there are some difficulties with that statement that I just made because IoT projects do take time. It's not an industry where you can buy an off-the-shelf solution all the time. Many applications, particularly at scale, are going to require design efforts to reduce the cost, reduce the size, reduce the the power they might be using, et cetera, and it takes time. Uh, What often tends to happen in sort of the the scale of things that we do today is that the people associated with the project get pulled off elsewhere. Maybe the project leader has gone on to a different company, et cetera, et cetera. So you end up with a scenario where where things stagnate, not because of the lack of success of a project, but sometimes due to external factors such as personnel being moved, projects being changed, the focus of the company might change. That's rarer, uh, but things like that happen. Um, what has worked well for us and, and, and usually helps any of our customers is there is an internal senior champion who says, aha, this is going to help us figure out the ROI, figure out the solution, and make it happen, and then gets that gets that uh, pushed through in ways that, you know, a typical CIO, for example, would say, this is a project that's worth doing because it's going to save some money for me, thus and so, um, and then proposes it and champions it and makes it happen. That's not always the case, uh, but it is certainly one of the successful ways of making things happen is to get an internal champion. Uh, you mentioned that you uh, that the, your your focus has really evolved from 
you know, connectivity managing, you know, managing connectivity across multiple networks into analytics. And I, I'd love to get your perspective on on some of the, uh, some of the really what's what's been what's been driving that and and how. Uh, you know how this is, has changed the way that you you, you interact with customers. Uh, you know what 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 has been the uh, you know what have been some of the inputs and the considerations that that you look at as as you start to incorporate you know advanced uh, advanced data analytics on, onto your onto your solutions. Sure. The reason we moved uh, from connectivity beyond connectivity is the word I would say, not moved from uh, beyond connectivity to supporting the customers with analytics. Uh, is is for a variety of reasons that um, that has been um, impacted by evolution and and changes in the industry as a whole. The existence of cloud solutions, which one could argue is just basically servers that are not in your own data center; they're somewhere else for someone else to deal someone else to deal with the headaches. But that's fine. The point is that network speeds, performance, cloud solutions where you can rely on somebody to store the data for you, worry about the issues of fault tolerance, where you worry about the issues of power distribution, worry about the cost of data centers is somebody else's headache, has revolutionized the fact that we can gather data and put it somewhere and analyze it. And so we recognized this about 10, 12 years ago, about 2006, 2007. We said connectivity is great. It is becoming easy, um, relatively speaking, to do. We can manage the devices. We know how to get the data from point A to point B. What the heck can we do to help our customers analyze that data? And it was driven by a particular customer who came to us and said, you know, I've created a solution. I've got a million-dollar data center that I put together, and now I have a problem with geographical fault tolerance. And, And sure enough, they had an, an, a data center in one place, and they wanted to be uh, the ability to put up another data center in another place, and they said this was going to be cost prohibitive for them to do it because they simply hadn't paid off the original data center yet. Um, and we said, great, let us take on the burden of managing that for you because our network solution, our infrastructure, our deployment of the products and services we sell required us to have multiple data centers, and we had them. And we said, can we help you put your systems into our data center? That was great. Step two was, ah, it's now in the cloud. We can make it happen in a very, very nice, fault-tolerant, redundant way for customers. Then the natural evolution of that was, we're transporting and storing the data for you. What business function does that data serve for you? Can we analyze the data to give you the information you really need? Meaning, if this threshold or this value changes to the point where you want it um, uh, reported to somebody who can take some action, can we do that on your behalf? So we put in all those systems, all those um, what I will call uh, streaming data um, analysis, not necessarily predictive data analysis, where we were starting to go into the content on behalf of the customer. We never go into the data without the customer being aware of what it is, and we do it on their behalf and we help them with fault-tolerant data solutions that allow them to say, somebody is managing my IoT data for me. I will deal with the application, the sale, the reporting of the data that matters, the information that matters, and then use that in my business. That's what we started out doing about 10, 12 years ago, and we've evolved it over the years uh, to where we now have uh, cloud analytics solutions and data storage solutions and data analysis solutions where, frankly, uh, we have some customers who don't even use our connectivity services who come in because we understand IoT data and how to analyze it. 
Have you uh, any views on the you know the potentially transformative or, or uh, impact of machine learning and, and AI and and you know to what extent is it uh, you know is that playing a, a role in accelerating uh, you know time to return or, uh, or or business value among among your your, the, your customers and, and and partners you're working with not enough yet let's put it that way I think that that's still a, a very uh, I don't want to use the word researchy, but it's still an area of expertise that uh, the value of that has still to be proven for our customers, which is not to say that there isn't value there. I'm, I really do believe there is. Uh, the ability to respond in an automated way, which is where machine learning could come into play, uh, for the, so that humans don't have to be involved in making some of those business intelligence decisions and the actions thereof, make a lot of sense. Um, I have not personally ex- looked at that enough to be able to answer your question in a more meaningful way than that. Well, that's a really interesting answer, though, as well, because you're—I mean, you—you—you you, uh, you guys exist where the rubber hits the road, as it were. So, yep. uh, and, and of course, in the technology industry, we are always enamored with the uh, the brightest, shiniest objects. So. Uh, exactly. <laughs> You know, certainly, uh, it's 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 no doubt that uh, that that there's a lot of potential. But again, getting a sort of understanding in reality where you know where customers are, I think that's that's very helpful perspective. Now, uh, are, you know, are there are there some some technology uh, hurdles or enablers for adopters that you think you know may be underappreciated? Uh, what you know. As, uh, the, sorry, my apologies. I didn't mean to interrupt there, but uh, that's a very good question. Um, to me, IoT scale, if we're going to achieve those billions of units, then we need to be able to put the processes and systems in place to be able to grow at scale, deal with the data at scale in ways that we have never imagined before for the IoT world, let alone all the data we generate elsewhere. Um, this term, I'm about to use a phrase that is not original to me. I wish I knew who had done it. I wish I could take claim to it. We are starting to get to the point where we are creating data museums. Mm. Um, and that's the phrase that I love, uh, meaning that we gather data and we stick it somewhere where the value of that data erodes over time, sometimes to the point where it's meaningless. Um, an alarm company once told me this, that they wanted us to make sure we had perfect fault tolerance, which is tough to do, uh, because the value of an alarm five hours after the event has taken place in a residential or business alarm system is absolutely of no value. Um, they were doing uh, they were doing traditional systems where 30 seconds to a minute was a big deal, and if we were reporting the data to them in two or three seconds, and they loved it. But if we had an outage, they would never see that data. Don't tell me the data after the fact because it has no value. So if we start sticking lots and lots and lots of IoT and other data into data museums, and we don't analyze that data to get the relevant information out of it, First, it was a waste of connectivity and storage and transmission and cost. And second, the, the, the use of, the, this is now my phrase, going back in there and looking at that data with archaeologists is meaningless. If, you, if there's value to making pattern recognition happen so you can predict the future, that's okay. But if the value of the data and you never look at it, you don't actually go in there and analyze that data, the point was lost. And I think we need to learn that um, those things need to be managed a lot better. We are in, the, in a world where somehow gathering data is more important than looking at it. And I, I, I would wish people get away from that thinking 
and look at relevant data and look at analyzing that data and taking the actions necessary to deal with the outcome of why we gather the data in the first place. I think that uh, that's a that's a great point. I mean, it really does cut to the, you know, the 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 value and the, the business value and the sort of the reason for collecting data. So it it, it does have to deliver. Uh, it, it, there has to be meaning behind it. So, um, looking forward, I mean, what uh, you know, what are some of the areas? Um, you know, as as you as you look at the market evolving over the next decade, are there, uh, you know, what are you optimistic about, and are there are there some concerns that uh, you know that that continue to linger? Um, one of the things that always is a concern in in the space that we are in, which is cellular IoT, is that we are piggybacking, frankly, on the systems that are in place for cellular communications for smartphone users. And when you look at it from that perspective, because it does help us with the cost of deployment and it does help us with the ability to deploy data in, in markets and coverage, which you wouldn't otherwise get, is that technology evolves. And you've seen transitions and sunsets in the cellular technologies that will continue to hamper the growth of the future. So I am particularly both uh, concerned about the next sunset, if you will. We've had a 2G sunset in the U.S., a 3G that is imminent. Well, when will the 4G sunset happen? Because we've all heard the hype about 5G. Uh, I hope it's 10, 15 or more years away, and ideally never, but that's a tough, tough requirement. Um, the, the, the real key point is, can we make sure that the usage of that available technology matches the life, life, life cycle of the products that need to use that technology? Mm. Uh, can we find alternative data transports particularly in areas where the cellular IoT systems cannot possibly go, like in the middle of the ocean or deep, uh, deepest, darkest Africa, where they may not have cellular because there are no people living there, et cetera, um, can we provide services? So I'm actually looking forward to some of these next-generation uh, low-Earth orbit IoT satellite systems that are coming up with the technology using nanosats, if you're familiar with that, mm -hmm. uh, at low cost, because the cost of operating and deploying a satellite system is so high that it's cost prohibitive if unless you can make the cost of the nanosats low enough that you can put up tons of them and then create a lower, lower Earth orbit data transmission capability where you can reach everywhere. And that's going to be a phenomenal, I think, in the next two to ten years. Uh, some people are a lot sooner, are more bullish about it than, than, than I am. But if it happens, it's going to revolutionize the transport of IoT data in certain uh, markets and certain locations. No, that's 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 pretty exciting, and and uh, you know, what uh, uh, what keeps you up at night is I mean a lot of I th I think security is certainly a you know a, on on everybody's mind. I'd love to get your uh, yep. your sense of, of of what some of your concerns are. You hit the nail on the head. Security is the one big thing that keeps me up awake at night. Um, we have seen financial security problems. We have seen uh, denial of service problems occur because of breaches. We have seen the impact that security can have outside IoT and, and with uh, identity theft, et cetera. To me, security for IoT is the one paramount con uh, problem that can, hander, ha that can hamper us, that can hinder us from growth, because people will react negatively to security breaches that cause harm. Now, harm can be measured in different ways. It could be financial harm. That's one thing. But if it turns out to be human harm, that's where I, I start getting very worried. If we do not plan for secure solutions in the IoT space and we have a breach that results in human harm, 
that will be a major setback for the industry. So I am on a soapbox when I talk about that, and I preach about it to just about everybody I can. And and um, I feel like I actually coined this phrase, security by design, about eight or nine years ago, but it has taken off in the industry, which I think mm-hmm. is fantastic. Um, we need to think about security as a part of the development process, as a part of the deployment process, as a part of the management process, not as an afterthought. Far too many people think of security as something we can tack on at the end or we can check for at the end and we can make changes at the end. It just is not practical or realistic to expect that from two perspectives. One is you will miss something. And number two is even if you have a very good solution today, the security problems evolve. Leakages happen. People, new um, state actors can come in and cause problems. We have to plan for evolution of our solution down the road. And we have to plan for being able to modify the devices as we need to down the road. So that's what keeps me awake at night, is if a security breach results in human harm, then I would be very concerned. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. So uh, you did mention these uh, these 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 low orbit uh, satellites, which is really interesting. But are there any uh, interesting technologies or, or startups that you're you're keeping your eye on? You know, I have to admit that I have not done that uh, extensively. We like to help startups get going. Uh, we have internal pro- – I have personally take, taken on a couple of small companies, not necessarily financially, but helping them understand how IoT can uh, help them. One example was that uh, blood sugar monitor that I talked about, mm-hmm. simply because I feel that there's some benefit to those kinds of applications, particularly in the healthcare industry. But I have not really spent any time looking at that. I think that companies that are at the forefront of um, deploying security solutions and looking at ways of um, managing data uh, to, con- to convert that data into actionable information is probably a good place to be and to understand what could happen in the future. I don't have any particular startups in mind, though. Okay. No, I I always like to ask that, but uh, you know sometimes sure. it, you know you we'll we'll put you on the spot. Well, well, the last one is I'm gonna I, I am gonna put you on the spot, which uh, okay. we always always like to ask uh, our podcast guests is a a recommendation of a uh, a book or a resource that you would uh, that you would share for our okay. for our listeners. That's a very good question, and then let me phrase it with a little bit of context for my answer. Um, I am a science fiction buff, and I have a large number of science fiction books in my personal portfolio, uh, well over 6,000 science fiction books at my wow. house. Wow. Wow. <laughs> it's a little insane, but uh, that's what I do. Um, I have a tendency to like an author and then buy every one of the books he or she has printed or published and then read through them and try to interact with the author. My favorite author in the science fiction world of all time is Jack Chalker. Unfortunately, he is no longer with us, but his books made you think. And uh, if you can get hold of his books, uh, when you can find them, because he was one of these somewhat of an iconoclastic individual who didn't always interact well with his publishers, but you can find his used books everywhere. Hmm. Jack Chalker, C-H-A-L-K-E-R, get a hold of his books, in particular, there's a, a four-volume uh, book series that he called the Diamonds, the Lord of the Diamonds uh, series. I would highly recommend that. My current author that I'm, I'm excited about and I've been reading everything he publishes is David Weber. Um, his books tend to be space operas, 
but I enjoy space operas, so why not, right? And his his premier series of books about a uh, captain of a fleet, first a ship, of a spaceship, and then eventually of a fleet, uh, the Honor series, if you will. Uh, and it would be something that I would highly recommend. So those two authors and those two series of books. Those are Lord those of the are, Diamonds. And, would be the best. Oh, phenomenal! No, those are those are great recommendations. I I, I love the the answers that we get when I uh, when I ask that question. So um, anyway, well, it, listen, it's been a it's it's been really insightful and and informative and and enjoyable uh, speaking with you, Z. And uh, just as a uh, to recap here, this is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner of Momenta, with another episode of our Edge podcast, and uh, with us. We've been speaking with Z Hussain, uh, CTO and founder of Eris Communications, and, and we will be posting show notes. Uh, Z, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Ed. I really enjoyed it. I love uh, talking about IoT, and I love talking about science fiction. So both of those topics came up. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have to uh, we'll have we'll have to do a follow up with a bit of a deeper dive with uh, okay. uh, with a collection like yours. I think there's I, I, that's that's the biggest collection of any anyone I've I've heard of. So I, I bet you can I bet you can really uh, you can you can provide an enormous amount of insight there. So thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Momenta Intelligent Edge podcast. We rely on feedback, comments, and input from our listeners. So please interact with us by going to our LinkedIn page, our Twitter accounts, or email us at edge at momenta.partners with any suggestions, guest ideas, or commentary. We really value your input and appreciate your listening. Thanks a lot. This is Ed McGuire, Insights Partner with Momenta Partners.